0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came
1: for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want?
0: Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're okay. I have Greg Gerke on the program today. He is the author of an essay collection called See What I See, available now from Zero Gram Press. That conversation coming up momentarily. Today's episode is made possible by Custom House Books, publisher of the novel Appleseed, by Matt Bell, on sale July 13th. Kelly Link calls Appleseed, quote, as urgent as it is audacious, and Karen Russell calls it, quote, a work of incandescent imagination. This is a new novel from the Young Lions Fiction Award finalist Matt Bell. It's a breakout book that explores climate change, manifest destiny, humanity's unchecked exploitation of natural resources, and the small but powerful magic contained within every single apple set in 18th century Ohio, set in 2020's United States, and a thousand years into the future. Matt Bell seamlessly weaves these three narratives together using mythology, folklore, and science fiction. He has written an unforgettable, speculative, epic novel. Appleseed by Matt Bell, available from Custom House Books. So my guest today is Greg Gerke. His new essay collection, See What I See, is out there now on Zero Gram Press. He also has a collection of stories out. It is called Especially... The Bad Things. That was published by Splice. His work has appeared in Tin House, Film Quarterly, The uh, the Kenyan Review, and many other publications, and I'm pleased to have him here on the program. We had a great conversation, and we're going to get to it right now. This is Greg Gerke, and his essay collection, One More Time, is called See What I See.
1: You know, it's surrounded by uh, Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, actually, because I, I had written this book, Kubrickology, which I've, I haven't done anything with. Uh, I've decided against it, (laughs) even though I was about to maybe do it uh, a year ago. It's you know, it's seeing The Shining and how The Shining, kind of mirrored in my situation with. I mean, with being the same age as the boy and two parents kind of at odds with each other. I mean, that's kind of where the relations stop. I mean, nothing else occurred that occurred in The Shining. But uh, I, I think both of my parents were into TV slash movies. So the movie angle started there from both of them. And I and I was very uh, taken with that. And, you know, Kubrick's at the the root of that because I couldn't watch The Shining for years because I was also taken into the theater to see it when I was five to get over my fear. (laughs) Wait, 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 what? (laughs) By my father. I mean, that's when the film came. I was, you know, five or six and we were there you know seeing another film and we came out and he thought well the shining is playing it's in the middle of the film why don't you come in and get over your fear of this (laughs) so that was a traumatic experience i mean yeah that that experience marked my life i think much more than anything else
0: that is a better that is a that is a better answer than i could have ever possibly (laughs) hoped for (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I, I want to dial back a little bit. Uh, when you talk about your fear of The Shining and getting over your fear of The Shining, had you tried to view the movie previously or was it a fear? I don't, you weren't reading The Shining at h Well,
1: no, it was based on, you know, the previews came out, the previews on TV. I saw the commercials. The book was out. The book had pictures of stills from the film. This is... Like May 1980, May June 1980. So I knew it was there. So that was the fear. The poster, certainly the poster of you know, yellow and black and kind of this in pointless dots. The 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 Jack figure. Um. So, no, I knew it was there, and you know, you watch TV so so much when you're young i i think most americans do this (laughs) so yo i I definitely
0: knew about it
1: okay so that's that's where that came
0: and your dad takes you in at five years old (laughs) just uh, yeah it's in the middle
1: you know in the i think it was actually in the beginning where the boy knocks tries to open the door but this is when the door is locked to the room He's on his big wheel and he goes to the door to open it, but the door is locked. That was the scene. I re- I remember. It was. I was only in there for like two or three minutes. Oh, okay. I couldn't <laughs> take it. You know, he asked the ticket taker, "Can we bring him in in the middle of the film?" So, two or three minutes. But yes, I was terrified, probably screaming and crying, and you know, my hands hands over my Face just like the boy in the film in in certain scenes,
0: and all these years later, like first of all, you've written a book called Kubrickology, which I, I you know, or at least,
1: yeah, kind of a memoir of the the early years, but also with readings of uh The Shining, Eyes Wide Shut, and Barry Lyndon, and those have been published on the on the internet. Those long essays on the films.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I remember reading The Shining. That's another mm. dis- distinct memory from my youth. But I read it, I want to say, in 1987 or 88, and yeah. I, it was like a silver paperback, as I remember, like mass market paperback. And I remember, especially in the back half of the book, having to read it in the living room with my family around, because <laughs> oh, okay. I was, you know, I was like a 10 or 11, or I guess 11 or 12 years old, and uh, nice, you know, spooky, It spooked the shit out of me. But I don't think I saw the movie until after that. And, yeah. you know, there are, in, in your essay collection, you are touching on certain artists over and over again who are touchstones for you in your creative life and in your life as um, like a dedicated fan of cinema and literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Forgive me if I'm missing anybody. Kubrick is certainly in there. Gaddis, Gas, yep. Henry James, Eric Romer, Paul Thomas Anderson makes one appearance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there are others, but I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about Kubrick since we're there and what it is about him that resonates so strongly for you and in particular Barry Lyndon, which I have spent this week watching. I, I watch it at night oh, when I'm great. when I'm going to bed. Uh, so I fall asleep. It's not a commentary on the movie. It's just me being sleep deprived and, you know, sure. middle-aged. I'm unable to make it through a movie anymore, but, um, I Especially got to the, a three hour one. Yeah. I got to the scene last night. I, I had to turn it off in the scene where the little boy gets thrown off the horse. That, um, pa- that painful scene where he's like holding his parents. hands. so was just like, oh my God, you know, I'm not going to be able to rest, but, uh, yeah. I got there and I'm just, you know, these movies are so uh, the word that comes to mind for me is precise. Like there's a like a precision and like a fanatical attention to detail in Kubrick that you talk a lot about in your writing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I just like I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on him uh, as somebody who's spent so much time watching his film, his films and thinking about um, their productions.
1: Yeah, well, there's just no one else like him. There's no film director that made films that uh, could appeal to so many different classes, the lower classes, high classes, avant-garde class. There's not really, you know, Hitchcock maybe, but I, I think Kubrick goes further than Hitchcock because we're still catching up to the film the film they're so timeless there's just there are not the markers in the even in even in barry linden which is you know about the 18th century the, the way the way it's photographed and and everything about it it, it could have just been made um I mean, two thousand and one. You you can see the the costuming and that that dates it. But I think Barry Lyndon, uh, The Shining, and Eyes Wide Shut are all they're from a different time. I mean, we're we're not even in that time. E- even though you know, The Shining, you see the the Woody Woodpeck the the Road Runner in the background it's still, there's, there's, there's not the regular markers. And so that, that, that's why the, those films just keep appealing to people because, uh, they can be seen so many times and more and more comes out of them. And, and what's crazy is, you know, doing a little research, you can see that even though they are so precise, as you say, he, played around a lot every day and rewrote dialogue. And there was a lot of chaos on the set of like finding, you know, and reshooting, you know, Eyes Wide Shut, the longest uh, film shoot ever. They probably shot the entire thing twice because people left. Jennifer Jason Lee was apparently in it and then replaced. Wait, wait,
0: in Eyes Wide Shut?
1: Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I think she she would play the Swedish woman uh, who has the dead father. You know, that, a short scene, like 10-minute scene in the beginning. Harvey Keitel was in it and had to leave. I think he was playing the Sidney Pollack role. So, you, you know, he Kubrick, I think starting with The Shining, started using the video feed playback so they were able to watch on video what they had just shot even in 1978 they were shooting The Shining so he could immediately say well this is not going to do and we'll have to do it again and so I I, there was this the fanatical you know we have to get it so real and you can tease out the little you know, the the few Jack Nicholson interviews where he, I think he says that in the making of The Shining, which his daughter made, uh, Kubrick's daughter made it. You know, I want to get to something beyond that we've never seen before. And that's the high number of takes that are so uh, touted for him. So, I mean, you, you do these things that many times plus kubrick the idiot savant you know read all the time chess master etc so i mean he he'd he'd read tons of literature and history and psychology every subject he he gobbled it up and so then you have these i think 12 films and many of them just they're going to be here forever and you know they're some of them are gaining in precedence and 2001 i mean what can you say there's some days where that has to be the greatest film of all time just because of the form and the subject matter you know to touch on what's after this life you know the star child um so they're, they're amazing documents.
0: Do you think when, with all of his, like his, you know, he's famous for, uh, you know, long shoots, a million takes. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing like a making of Eyes Wide Shut documentary or something where Tom Cruise was talking about a scene that he shot with Sidney Pollack in that billiards room in Pollock's mansion. Yeah. And by the way, can I just give a shout out to Sidney Pollock as an actor? I love <laughs> oh, him. Oh, yeah. He's the best, like in everything, you know, I feel like every time he's in a movie, I love it Um, from Husbands and wives, Tootsie, uh, and then uh, Michael Clayton, he was in, I thought he was like the best thing in Michael Clayton. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, he's just always a scene stealer. And I really love him on screen. But um, anyway, Tom Cruise was talking about shooting a scene with Sidney Pollack in a billiards room, which was a pretty rudimentary scene, like there wasn't a lot going on. And they they did like a take, they did another take. They might've done like 10 takes. And Tom Cruise was thinking like, I got this. And it was like a month later, they were still shooting that scene. (laughs) You know, like it's something like that. You know, he just, it was his introduction to the like incredibly detailed approach to film direction that Kubrick was famous for. Yes, yes. And as an extension of that anecdote, The question I would have for you as somebody who's studied this more closely than I have is that do you think Kubrick knew what he was looking for or do you think that he only knew it once he saw it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like did he have a vision in his mind or did he just do a million takes to cover himself and then figure it out in the edit?
1: No, I think he – someone even said about him that he knows what he doesn't want. He knows that much. So, yeah, you had to bring off what he wants, which, you know, he chose certain actors for their star capability, and he chose certain non-actors, because a few of the films are filled with, uh, you know, not stars, like Full Metal Jacket, 2001, you know, uh, so... He and again, that chaos thing where, you know, he shut down Barry Lyndon for four months because they he just was not satisfied with the locations and it drove the production designer. I think he the production designer had a nervous breakdown, uh, he did win the Oscar for art direction later, but he was I, he was famous just for pushing people to the end of their of, of their limits and, and you know i think he was on the he might have been on the spectrum a bit because there was kind of a i i hear in a lot of interviews you know someone said well i i have to go stanley and he's like well why <laughs> yeah, well i have to go to my family well why do you have to go to your family like he didn't understand about certain things but i mean he was a great creator and he he knew what to do with the camera and he knew he basically invented the steady cam, which is basically how we see films and tv for the next 40 years in the shining it's it's a, it's an amazing he was an amazing person do you have a favorite film? I guess Barry Lyndon is the one. Yeah, it, it kind of oscillates. I that's probably a favorite, but also The Shining and 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 then 2001 is almost it's too much. But then the, you know, Eyes Wide Shut as well. It's it's those four really, I would say.
0: Yeah. I like uh Paths of Glory. Am I getting that right? Paths Oh, of- yeah. Yeah, that's a, sure. and that's one of his first films. It was the killing, and then I, wasn't it the killing, mm-hmm. and then I and then Paths of Glory, if I'm remembering. Yes, but he kind of disavowed himself from the first film, or he wanted to shut it down because I don't think he felt it met his standards or something. Am I wrong? Or, yeah,
1: yeah, that's the one
0: uh, before. It's before the killing. Uh, like a horse horse racing, or I'm, I'm trying. You know, my memory's spotty, but well, the killing
1: is about it. Has horse racing in it, but that was a no. That's a great film. That wasn't the one. The first one uh, was made maybe five years before that, and Paul Mazursky was in it. Actually, I can't remember. He he did try to gobble up the all the negatives and destroy them. Right. It's not too. I've seen it. It's not. I mean there are sparkles but it's not it's not too memorable. The Killer's Kiss is the next one and then The Killing, both two noir films and then Paths of Glory.
0: Got it. Yeah, yeah. I just I, I remember seeing Paths of Glory and feeling like it was uh incredibly strong, like for early career oh, work. Yeah. I w- I was very impressed with it. And I'm glad to hear you say that you like Eyes Wide Shut because I feel like that movie, you know, that movie and Barry Lyndon both get shit on in the critical press or have been over the years, um, as like his lesser work. And I'm like, really? Like I thought eyes wide shut was superb. No. And Barry Lyndon, like Barry Lyndon won. I was reading up on it, um, you know, preparing for this conversation. And, um, I want to say that, um, Ryan O'Neill got the Razzie or whatever for like worst performance, (laughs) you know? So like in its moment, in its moment, it was looked, not looked upon in the way that, it, you know, it has, is looked upon now, like it's aged much better than I think people might've anticipated.
1: Yeah. Those two films were completely unexpected because he'd had his finger on the pulse of pop culture with, uh, Dr. Strange love, 2001 and a clockwork orange. And then suddenly here's this costume drama and then eyes wide shut. He of course had died people were expecting this sex romp and it's quite i mean there's a little of that but it's it's really about long relationships and the things we hide from each other in those long relationships uh and yeah the critics most of the critics were not ready to
0: cope with that but it's a great film i love that film a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Um, do you have any sense that there's kind of an heir apparent or like a an heir to Stanley Kubrick? who's currently working like i'm would paul thomas anderson be the closest thing somebody who's making films that really have something to say and, and and also saying a lot of different things i feel like that's kind of the direction he's headed in his career probably in america yeah
1: i he would be the one though i wasn't loving phantom thread as everyone else was I thought it was a little step down from the last two, which I think were his best. This, the Master and Inherent Vice, I think were, are his two full, fullest films. Uh, I mean, the, and, you know, as far as cinema, I think the most interesting things going on are going on in every other country except ours. Unfortunately, you know, the the 90s indie film scene in the U S was so strong and it's just fallen apart kind of though. So I just saw this film called the mend on, it's on the criterion channel by John Magri, which is totally absurd and funny you, like Beckett being stuck in the, in an apartment. Uh, so there, I mean, there's here and there, there's something, but, um, Hong Sang-soo in South Korea, He's like a roamer, so he's not more the Kubrick. But I think the Turkish guy, um, Ceylon, Nuri Bilge Ceylon, I might be interposing some of those names, quite interesting films uh, that he's making. He's more out of Bergman, Antonioni, Tarkovsky, but... they're they're very easy to get. They're not hard, but I, I think there's a lot going on in those films. Um, then we have Malick and Lynch. We have Malick, Lynch, and Anderson. I think those are the the three. We'll see what Malick does next. I mean, I think I was getting a little. Even the the latest one about the war. I just I didn't even I didn't finish it not because I didn't like it I just you know thing other things came up but we'll see what he does next.
0: It's interesting his his career arc because he made those two masterpieces in the late seventies I guess early eighties or was it all late seventies I'm thinking of Badlands 70s. yeah Badlands and Days of Heaven and then he goes silent until '98 I think with Thin Red Line which I loved. I remember, yes. like, I, m- I remember going on opening night to a packed theater to see thin red line. Nice. And I always was like dragging friends of mine who had like no real interest. <laughs> you know, so I had a friend like who at the end of it was like, and I did the same thing with eyes wide shut. Incidentally, And I, I remember in both cases, like being like super jazzed at the end of the film and like turning to my friend and my friend was just like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> um, But yeah, he's just – he had like this big, huge gap of nothing and then over the past two decades has made quite a few films in his late life. Yeah. What was he doing? Do you know what he was doing in those like gap years between Days of Heaven and – I think he was living the life
1: that he would actually put into those latest films that have come out, you know, like romances and – to the Wonder film is very autobiographical. I can't abide Ben Affleck's acting, but, you know, I'm hoping one day there's going to be a way to uh, digitally insert a different actor into the role <laughs> so I can watch him or, or let's say, you know, someone like Daniel Day Lewis play that role <laughs> over so I don't have to see Ben Affleck uh but i mean some of the stuff in that film is still stunning i mean the the photography uh but i think he was he lived in france or something so you know there's scenes of to the wonder in france and and he's doing stuff in texas i i i think you know he, he probably just didn't have anything to say really and uh I think he was writing some screenplays too, uh, and maybe working on his his Heidegger thoughts because he he'd done a Heidegger a thesis on Heidegger, I believe. So I think you know he was he's doing some reading for twenty years.
0: And I mean that like what a novel what a novel concept like I didn't have anything to say you know so I just yeah. kept my mouth shut that almost never happens these days like, <laughs> even, even if you have nothing to say you could say something right. you you know you tweet about it but. <laughs> Uh, I remember, like while we're in this world, like Malik was a huge like that. That uh, seeing Badlands and Days of Heaven really struck mm-hmm. me. Um, yeah, I remember seeing Blue Velvet, being really struck by it, and then I remember also seeing Boogie Nights when it came out. I think you and I are the same generation, yeah. age, age range, and yeah, I'm a year younger, uh, older maybe. Okay, but going to the theater and seeing Boogie Nights, I would have been. 22 Mm -hmm. and paul thomas anderson made that when he was 27 (laughs) and (laughs) i had just come out of film school uh, you know whatever passes for going to college Uh i was a very disinterested undergraduate student but uh (laughs) i remember just like looking at my buddy and being like fuck like he's five years older than we are (laughs) like i can barely operate a camera you know like this guy is just way beyond like he it was very obvious like this is the this is our guy like our generations Mm -hmm. scorsese or whatever you know comparison you want to make like it just it was such a big talent and it was he was so young to you know and so i guess like i'm impressed at the technical level i'm impressed that he wrote the script and shot it what i'm also impressed with when it comes to kubrick lynch malik any of them anybody who's making films that fall outside of the marvel universe Mm -hmm. um is the achievement of getting the fucking thing made in the first place like getting the money and how do, like how do you even wrangle all of those forces like the the social and the business achievement of being able to make a film that does not hold like a reasonable degree of promise of profitability you know what i'm saying in in this environment just seems like that that's almost as impressive as the piece of art itself yeah with
1: John Cassavetes, who would be on that list for me, he would be the perfect you – know, he was the father of American independent cinema. And he basically funded a lot of his films. He even self-distributed a few of them, which is unheard of. And he self-distributed the best uh, one, The Woman Under the Influence, which went on to make a lot of money and get nominated for Oscars. Uh, so I think, you know, these guys, the, Scorsese said it too. I mean, Swiss, Scorsese would talk to Cassavetti's They knew each other, you know, in, in New York. And I think Scorsese showed him Boxcar Bertha, which was Scorsese's second film. And Cassavetti said, you just wasted two years of your life making a piece of shit. He says, don't you have anything, you know, you're passionate about? Not this Roger Corman, which it was, a Roger Corman type of film. And he, well, Scorsese said, well, yeah, I have this script called Mean Streets. Well, go do it. Do that one. Cassavetti, you know, he made, <laughs> he influenced people to to follow their passion. And I think that what it was all, what's it all about? And then we have Scorsese with Mean Streets, so everything it's all connected
0: well i didn't i didn't uh i didn't know that i didn't know that cassavetes Mm -hmm. had had that impact on scorsese but it's yeah it makes sense to me that he would have because uh i find john cassavetes as a talker and a thinker about being a creative person and like what it actually means to be an artist in our society and the culture like as good and as inspiring as anybody. Uh, There is a a book of collected interviews, I think, that I read with like a highlighter, you know, just every page, you know, like so just into him as a thinker and as a person who was willing to risk so much to do his thing. He had such confidence, you know, like he was willing to just go broke and like swipe his credit card and, (laughs) you know, do whatever it took. You know, he was just he was heroic in that way and very inspiring and um like just such a force of nature so much energy
1: yeah th- those people are going missing though i <laughs> i think in our influencer days you know and tiktok or whatever you call these days uh you know less and less of those people and that's that's not good i agree i think
0: well, and, and also, like, I think the loss, and I know I'm, I'm going to sound like a, you know, an old person grumbling, but <laughs> the loss of the theatrical experience for cinema is not a small loss. It's not the same thing to watch a movie on your phone. It's no. ju- It's just not. And the communal nature of cinema, sitting in a dark room with strangers and sharing that, like, psychic space— hearing the laughter and the gasps and the reactions of people in that room, that was all part of it. You know, going to see Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid in a theater, yep. had I seen that for the first time, even, <laughs> even on a flat screen, you know, even on like one of these televisions with the right aspect ratio, even mm-hmm. that's not the same thing. And no. I don't, I will go to the mat defending that position. You know, we like, if I were the John Cassavetes of today, you know if i were paul thomas anderson and i'm mm-hmm. making i you know, he's making a film or he's i think he's in post production or maybe even done with his next film and i'm looking at putting it out into the world and my options are to do like what a premiere maybe a very limited theatrical theatrical release and then all of a sudden it's on amazon or something mm. what a bummer yeah. you know like i want people to be in the theater seeing this film that i've labored over every frame of i don't I don't knock somebody for having that position, especially somebody who's as accomplished as he is. Um, yeah. But he's not the only one. There are so many filmmakers, I think, who would prefer that their films be shown uh, on the big screen.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's you can't fast forward and rewind. You can't stop it. That's the whole po- point. If you went to the bathroom, well, you're, you're just going to miss that. And you're, you know, maybe you need to hold it in. Right, right. (laughs) Maybe you should not have had that monster energy drink before the movie. Right. (laughs) And if the film is good enough, I remember times I couldn't leave the seat. You know, you just can't. It's too transfixing to see something like that. And you got to stay. And it's... And you're seeing the act the, the film the grain of the film, which is very hard to imagine, but it's it's not su- supposed to be digitized. You're supposed to be seeing film projected. I know there's a lot of restorations, but you know there's you project the film and you depend on actually the theater lights if the theater bulbs are off and you can remember theaters having that problem you know that's part of the experience too and that's it really can change things for people and it's also the reverent fact you know the reverence factor this is the art that you do that you know how can you see how can you watch a videotape of a theater play you have to go to the theater and see live people there's That's the only way. That's it. Do you think it's going to come back, the the movie
0: theater experience?
1: I hope. I mean, it seems more people are going in New York that that I've heard. I, I don't know out there. But probably in the bigger cities, it would, I think, survive much more. And I mean the multiplexes that only show the Marvel movies, well, who gives a shit anyway, yeah. maybe they should end i mean if you If you can't even watch something that's halfway decent
0: I can't stand the it's not i I think I've decided that i I can tolerate comic book movies. There's nothing wrong with a comic book movie that like they can be mm-hmm. fun it's yeah. just it's just the number of them. That's, yeah. I think, where my biggest beef is. It's, it feels like it's that's the, that's all there is. And I guess that's just the market demand. That's what people want. But if that's what people want... They want easy
1: things. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, isn't that what television is for? <laughs> I mean, television series are basically easy things. Twin Peaks accepted, but, you know... Uh... But everything's becoming, there's all these, you know, this little network has their own original series. It's impossible to keep track of them. But I I think they, even still, it it doesn't compare to cinema. Any any television. Twin Peaks is the exception, again. But even the long play formats, I mean, Kent Jones... The best, one of the best American film critics said, "You know, it, it's all about twists of the plot in in long format television series, and and that's just not what cinema is. I mean, you know, the notion of cinema. It, yes, there's story, but it's it's a visual art. It's not it's not all storytelling." Or you know, t-
0: plot twists. There's a lot to go on. Yeah, I just watched Mayor of Easttown, uh, mm. which like has been buzzy. You know, everybody's talking about it, and so I got curious and I started watching it, and I got hooked. Like I yeah. was into it. But you talk about plot twists. Like this was a seven episode limited series that I thought should have ended after the fifth <laughs> uh-oh, episode. Oh. And. It was very well. I'll say this: I, lo- I I like Kate Winslet a lot as an actor. I think she's fantastic. Like she, mm-hmm. uh, she elevates what she's in. I mean, I think that's how I feel about her. Like I, I feel like the reason Titanic. Like I've thought a lot about Titanic. <laughs> I like to watch Titanic when I'm stoned. Uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's an awesome stoner movie, is what I would argue. Yeah. And so because I've watched it multiple times under the influence, I've uh, I've thought a lot about why it was so popular. Like you can knock it a million different ways. I know the script is terrible and like, it's like, you know, embarrassingly treacly and all this different stuff, but you know, there are technical achievements in terms of design and Leo and, and, uh, Kate Winslet are good actors. And, uh, I think the reason that movie floats pun intended (laughs) is that she is the best thing in it. Like, I think she's the reason that movie works. Um, but anyway, the to get back to your point about plot twists in long-form television, that resonates a lot because as I was finishing that series, like, you know, you want to get to the end. Once you get past a certain point with one of these series, you're like, I got to find out, right? Especially yeah. in a, a true crime kind of mystery um, story. But the amount of twists and surprises and ahas exhausted me. And uh... it felt like they were putting them in there as some kind of necessity like oh we got to do this because the audience wants us to do you know what i'm saying it mm-hmm. lost its or it lost its organic feel That that's what i felt like it came apart for me in that end like it was well executed the acting was great i watched the whole thing which if you want to try to like create a verdict for me like a baseline verdict for me on whether or not something is quote unquote good. If I finish it, it's good. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, cause I will wind up tuning out or I'll put the book down or whatever. If I, if I can't deal, but, um, yeah. I just felt like the, and I know this from my like limited experience as a screenwriter, you know, how much pressure there is on you to keep people glued with either like a joke every half a page or, um, a twist every 10 pages or whatever it is, you know, it's just constantly shoehorning these things in there and it can take some of the oxygen out of it. You know, it can become suffocating or just, yeah. sort of, you start to numb out or something.
1: Yeah. When you try to make something for the common denominator, you know, the big, for the biggest audience possible, that that's what you come away with. It seems like.
0: Okay. Excellent, an excellent moment to segue because uh, one of the things that I thought when I was reading your book is, first of all, uh, like doing a podcast, like how do you feel about talking to me and like doing a podcast? Like, do you hate podcasts? (laughs) You seem like Uh, someone who would think these kinds of things are trifles or something.
1: No, no. And I've, I've admired your podcast. I've been listening to it. uh, And some great writers uh no i you know i'm being the same age basically i'm missing these experience these experiences along with the pandemic year and a half we have here of just being with people and not you know being i know this is virtually or on you know conversation but us being on phones, it's just, it's awful, I think. And to, you know, I've even set up like Skype calls with a few writer friends just to like something different. Uh, But, you know, but even before the pandemic, I'd noticed people were getting together less and less. I mean, we have kids too, that plays a factor. But the, the way younger people meet each other, uh, with all the the apps and you know dating with seeing a profile, and we're from a time where you you went out and danced, or and, and I'm, you hear da- dance clubs are closing down. People don't even go out to see each other anymore. So you no, know, this is refreshing in, in a way, uh, and as opposed to some literary events, <laughs> which are, uh, I don't know. I I don't know how you feel about literary events, but...
0: It's, I'd, it's I'd hit and miss. It's hit and miss. It depends. Yeah.
1: I'd almost rather never hear people read. I'd rather hear them talk just like this. Yeah. Because the reading experience, unless it's a poet, that's a little different. But the, the reading experience is so internal, I think, like... We don't need that. Like going to hear Gordon Lish, for instance, when he had a book come out, he never said a word about it. It was just a monologue for an hour about, you know, wonderful things. And then he'd maybe read a bit of Don DeLillo's old book from The Players. And that was his book launch. (laughs) He was talking about everything else. Except himself, that's amazing to think. I mean, he's an egomaniac, but <laughs> still, he he. The oral culture we're, we're losing, you know that. He he him him and Harold Bloom. If you've heard these wonderful uh, tapes of Harold Bloom talking in the classroom, these monologues, they were both great orators and i think that's where they both shined and not in their written work just speaking running the threads together they there's they were amazing people i mean lish is still alive but i don't think he's doing any events anymore
0: yeah it's funny you know people who are great educators uh i think lish and bloom would mm-hmm. qualify you know like real like like brilliant um i guess academic might be a word but I find that when I read stuff by teachers, huh. I'm often most moved by transcripts. Uh, even if they've been edited, polished, shined up a little bit, rather than their prose. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like there's an, there's an energy, like some people can really talk is the point, you know, and it's a, I yeah. think it's an outgrowth of how much reading they do and how learned they are. You know, I don't mean to um, denigrate The written word. I'm just saying that, like, sometimes it's it's more impactful. I find, you know, when I'm reading, like, somebody, like a transcribed talk by somebody who's really gifted that way, um, it packs a punch and it cuts Mm -hmm. it cuts through, you know, or it's easier for me to take in or something. But, um, there is in your book, uh, the word I that kept uh, recurring to me was defiant there is a defiance in you on the page uh, when it comes to prose style, when it comes to your posture, relative to uh, art and the culture. (laughs) Uh, There's something antiquated, almost, about your style that I think is totally intentional. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you, uh, one of your epigraphs, I think, is Ralph Waldo Emerson and night you know this might be a mischaracterization but like there is something almost like 19th century-ish or early 20th century-ish to me about you on the page like i i recognize that sort of care with language um a lot of words i had to look up if i'm being honest uh you know (laughs) like you're not uh, you're kind of cutting against the grain in terms of the pro style that i most often see in the books that cross my desk that get sent to me by publishers. Mm. Um, like, am I saying things to you that are of any, in any way surprising? Yes. Well, thank you very much. I, I mean,
1: I think that's, that's, that's what it is. I, I would, I would say I, I would agree with all of that. Um, and, you know, with William Gass, I mean that's the that's the the linchpin the, or the lodestar. So I think I've been trying to do something like that to to bring an, an architecture to the sentence, to to make every sentence count. It sounds cliche, but um, that that was behind that was the intention to to make it beautiful if if one can and to and you know seeing what art has become the reactions in the zeitgeist you see them every day on twitter yeah i'm definitely defiant against <laughs> what, what's happening to can you know canceling of Shakespeare, etc. cetera. Like we haven't gone to him yet, but I'm sure he's next on the list. Uh, you just can't throw away your history. Uh, and this is our history. So I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But yeah, I, there's a lot of reactions. This was through the 2010s. I, I wrote the, the book. So you know, times have really changed in the last ten years, and I, I think this th- there is a reaction to what has happened, and uh, just trying to to hold on, and, and not to be so mournful, but to just just to say, well, no, th- we're gonna do. Let's have it this way, and it is kind of a let's go back to the modernists. Let's go back to the Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: What about people listening, uh, in particular, maybe younger people, but it could be anybody who might Mm -hmm. be listening to us saying like, man, these are some grumpy (laughs) middle-aged dudes who just are resistant to change. Like, aren't we kind of like right where, like, isn't it kind of cliche for people at our stage of life to be grumbling about how art isn't? the same as it used to be, and it used to be better, or, you know, certain aspects of it anyway, you know, the movie theater yeah. experience that we were talking about. Like, maybe, is is that what's happening to us? Are we just becoming old and grumpy? Well, or, or do we have a point? <laughs>
1: I think a little bit, but I think this can really be nailed down, I think, to the year 2000. I think that was the real shift in both literature and cinema. Something happened, And from that date onward, there has been much, much less great art. And people were talking about it. Maybe it's because that's when the conglomerates really got into the book industry, certainly. I mean, they were already there in the film. But much, you know, you remember the late 90s, in the mid 90s, Foster Wallace, uh, you know, DeLillo, etc., there has been nothing like that. Uh, in fi- I'm mainly talking fiction, um, but even poetry has certainly fallen off. Something happened then. I, I, I just—it's hard to put, but I think it's about money and conglomerates. And uh, no, there is <laughs> there is a bounty of great art in the past, and there's been a steep drop off in the last twenty years. There's there's no doubt in my mind. Um, technology played a big part in this as well. The Internet started to rev up around the year 2000. Social media in the last 10 years. So our concerns have been, like, elsewhere. We we want more attention. We don't want to make great art necessarily. You know, video uh, um, reviews for... Not reviews, but when books come out, there was this whole thing, you know, making a video. What what, what was that called? Like a trailer? Like a book trailer? A trailer. <laughs> book trailer. Yeah. A book trailer. So there was this movement towards that. And, you know, there's still a lot of amazing things going on in the small press world, which a lot of people still ignore, including the gatekeepers the new york times harper's the lrb who's never even reviewed christine Scott, for instance or joseph mcelroy 90 years old now one of our great writers you've never been reviewed in harper's long, long form or the lrb M- many people uh, antonio uh los antunes a portuguese writer, has never been reviewed there so there's these many great things out there that the gatekeepers are still stopping us from and i think there's some defiance that you you see i'm defiant i'm angry about that and you know we we need to keep opening up and and looking elsewhere and not just the same Ben Lerner, Rachel Cusk, Ben Lerner, Rachel Cusk. No, there's a a lot of books out there and a lot of people that are getting ignored. And someone needs to step up and and change that.
0: Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I've had arguments in the past with writer friends of mine about, it's like always along the lines of like why certain books cut through. That's usually the context of the conversation. So it's like, why did this book find such a big audience? And yeah. it's a and it's a good book. You know, it's not to knock the book, but it's just like why this one? And I've had friends of mine in the past say, Well, it's just good. It's just better. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's kind of like this argument that like the cream rises to the top. And mm. I bristle against that because it doesn't square with my experience as a reader. I'll read a great book and then a few weeks later i'll read another what i consider to be just like a wonderful book that gets 400 readers you know what i'm mm-hmm. saying that doesn't get reviewed that nobody gives a shit about and i'm like this is a yeah. masterpiece you know like for my money and it, it's very frustrating i think it's part of the reason why i keep doing this show is that i'm just like well you know someone's gotta like you, you gotta you gotta make some noise and agitate for books it's just it's it's uh deeply frustrating to me to see such good work go unnoticed and I think a lot about it as do you you know like is it technology is it the conglomeration certainly at the big publishing houses like it can't be good that that much corporate power is running the arts you know that concentrated corporate power like we've got to make it more diffuse it seems like a much healthier ecosystem But also just that the gates or the barrier to entry in terms of who can make a book. I mean, there's so many, you know, like like part of it is that it's just a flooded market. So I feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth in some respects, because it's like, (laughs) I want, I want there to be um, more great work recognized, but I also seem to say that like they're publishing too much or there's too many books out there and. I don't know if there's any way to put that genie back in the bottle. Like same thing goes with film, you know, now that there's YouTube and Vimeo and you can make a movie with your iPhone. Like, I think it's just a different world, you know, to operate in. And, um, you know, how that affects the ability for really great work to find an audience I can't say exactly. You like to think that the really good stuff is going to stick around.
1: Well, there is a lot of, you know, there's NYRB classics. There is a lot of rediscovery of writers, you know, that people like Lucia Berlin and and there's a lot of those cases. And and there's a lot of people that want something more than major houses are putting out now a lot of them are actually on twitter there's a lot of readers that take pictures of their books of books they read that's fine they're readers and they want something that's going to knock knock them off their chair so the people are out there and now you can you know you're we're more in touch with the audience visual you know through social media so Uh, we, we need to to keep pushing different work to them because cause they want it. They don't want the same old things. And worldwide, I'm not. I just don't mean our our country. I mean worldwide. Translations gotten, you know, much better, much bigger audience. People want different things. Uh, so. Yeah,
0: that's what I've been hungry for this year. I've been trying Mm -hmm. to make a concerted effort to read more in translation, like a, because it's one of my, you know, many, many blind spots as a reader. And just, you know, I can't, can't take in everything, but I just have not read enough in translation. And it just like occurred to me, like, I'm like really sick of reading so much of my own countrymen. Not that a lot of it's not great, (laughs) but you know what I'm saying? Like, I I was just kind of like, after the last four years, I'm like. Man, I've had a lot of America in my grill for a long time. Like, it might be a good idea to read outside my... Find uh, this
1: Portuguese guy, Antunes. He probably would have won the Nobel if Saramago hadn't. But it's like they can only give one Portuguese person the Nobel. Right.
0: So (laughs) that was it. He got that seat.
1: Yeah, well, putting, putting people and things into boxes, I think that... I don't think that helps. And... You know, uh, why 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 can there only be one Portuguese? <laughs> why <laughs> you, you know why why I, it it shouldn't matter? Uh, you know, I I don't want to read a journal with twelve clown stories. I don't want to read the clown issue. I want a journal with just everything. Everything. You know, why does it have to be all of one thing? It, Stuff little little things like that. I know there's you know gimmicks and stuff like that, but it, it seems kind of tawdry,
0: you know. Maybe it's it's got to have uh, it's it's got to have something to do with. It's easy you know, when you package it and you theme it out, it must sell better. That's I mean it's yeah. the only, only thing I can think of. <laughs> but I hear you. <laughs> well, that's why I'm starting a journal
1: to combat. The rise of Substack, actually, because I think a lot of writers are turning to that. But, you know, it, they're not going to be peer-reviewed. People are just going to plop. So I'm doing a journal called Socrates on the Beach for longer works of prose. It'll come out in the next couple months. Is it going to be quarterly? or like? Yeah, a qu- an internet journal, quarterly. Oh, cool. And I'm paying the contributors. So... I mean, it's it's going to be small. It's just me. But, you know, six to eight people. I still, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I don't even know what Substack is. I can't keep up, you know? like Yeah. It's just another platform where you can have subscribers. And I think it's more for journalists, really. There are people that, you know, write on books, let's say, or film. But I think the people that want to read thousands of articles about Senate and all all political things, which I do not want to read any of them anymore for years. Right. Uh, I, I mean, how many of those things can you read? This Matt Taibbi or whatever his name is. He, you know, how much belly aching about, you know, we got through it. Let's just take a breath. And I know there's a lot of bad things still happening, but.
0: So I want to talk a little bit more about you biographically, um, because this is woven sure. into, this is woven into your book, um, mm-hmm. born and raised in Milwaukee. Yes. Um, you know, you sort of talked about it at the top when we were discussing Kubrick Um, You know, being in a household where the parents were sort of at odds, you turned to television and movies, I think in particular as a kid, um, as a way of um, escape or, you know, fascination. And then I guess I want to hear more about like getting out of childhood, getting out of Milwaukee and becoming the writer and artist that you've become. Um, Uh Just wondering how it happened and how your sensibility formed.
1: Well, I went – I wanted to be a film director, and I went to film school at the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But they had – it was more an uh, avant-garde program, a non-narrative program. Me
0: too. You know, I went to, I went to Boulder, which was oh, Stan Brakhage and uh, – Right. Like all of them. Exactly. It. And I had – and the thing is, I'm such a moron. I had no idea. <laughs> Did you meet Stan Brakhage? Yeah. Oh, yeah well, there you go,
1: yeah He was I, their God
0: at my school, yeah, but the thing is is that I didn't even appreciate that I was meeting stan brackage and and like you know, after the fact, I came to deeply appreciate him, um yeah, like he's a hero, even you know mm. of mine, and it's just and I also just ache for like what a missed opportunity it was to like sit at his knee and learn um but. I think the hand-painted films in particular are just uh, remarkable, you know. It's a different kind of film. you got to be, you know, prepared. Dark
1: Star Man, too, is... Yeah. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Amazing. So, anyway, yeah. we share that in common. You went to the University mm-hmm. of Milwaukee thinking that you were going to be, like, the next Kubrick, and suddenly you're watching <laughs> Stan Brackage's wife give birth. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, they didn't care for my films. I think I was... In fact, they weren't going to let me go on because you had to do two years of something and, you know, graduate to the the next higher echelon in your junior year. So I, just, I kind of felt it was going that way. So I just said, forget it. And I drove across the country to see the w- country, see the West. And I motored through... Oregon and stopped in Eugene for some reason someone mentioned it and I looked around for a day in Eugene Oregon where they had a university and I thought well I can just finish here so I moved to Eugene and eventually went to the college so there was that was the turn to to do writing and literature I mean I wrote screenplays in Milwaukee but nothing came of them so I finished in the University of Oregon in a a literature program and, you know, read more, wrote more, wrote more narrative uh, things, more flash fiction, I would say. I had a lot of stumbling, you know, a lot of stepping stones, you know, novels throw them away, novellas throw them away, and then... Then, actually, the internet, there were these internet journals showing flash fiction, and uh, th- those were the first things I ever got published. And then I began to read those writers, Gary Lutz, now Gary L. Lutz, uh, Christine Scott, who were writing in much more shorter form, Sam Lipsite, who you've had on the show, Um, so then there was all the literary influence in those years. Then I went, well, I lived in Europe too. I, it's, there's so many things I can't, I was in Germany for a year and a half as well. But, uh, you know, to, 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 to be around, to do what, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway did and that type of thing uh so i mean that probably did something and then uh moved to new york i think in 2005 and so i was much closer to the literary world than closest you can be and then go to these readings you know see james salter read uh, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Inter- start interviewing people. I interviewed Paula Fox, uh, and then Gas. A couple of years after that, so I was doing a lot of that kind of work. Starting to writing reviews, doing you know reading series. So meeting a lot of writers because I didn't have an MFA, um, so I had to do it this way. So. It was, it was a lot of that, a lot of going to readings and and meeting people that way
0: but in for terms a while. Of, in terms of your creative identity, in terms of mm-hmm. like, like sussing out, like you, you, it seems like in Eugene, you started to make the separation from the aspiration to be a film director. And you started yeah. to get more literary. I became more literary like my third year of college. I just didn't want to change majors because it would have been costly and I wanted to get out of school. Um, that was kind of my whole, uh, motivation, but Mm. I remember a having like very little interest in the machinery. Like I just don't want to deal with a camera and also all the, all the bullshit you have to go through to get a film made. Like I got frustrated with that. I think I had a desire for control. Um, and I liked the limited solitary nature of literary storytelling and just literary work. Uh, Was that similar for you? It was this. Yeah, it it actually it was. It was
1: realizing I am not a social person to be being around people and (laughs) asking them to do things, you know, on a crew or something like that. That's just it was not me. So I needed to find something and, you know, writing screenplays that's was more me. I was reading Bergman's screenplays and a lot of plays. And that's, that just, that was more me. So, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I love that you're reading Bergman. I mean, that's like, <laughs> you know, for a young person, that's such like a heavy choice, you know, like, do you have teachers? Were there mentors in your life that were super influential? Or were you just kind of on the breadcrumb trail, you know, watching movies, figuring out which ones you liked? then reading up on the directors. You know what I'm saying? Was it a little six- bit. Yeah, a little bit of each. I mean, my
1: mother took me to see Hannah and her sisters when I was 12 or 13. And Woody Allen led me to Bergman eventually. And I also had an uncle who's very artistic, uh, you know, a classical guitar player. He's. I went to visit him in Boston, I think, when I was 20. And... He gave me all these Samuel Beckett books and Sam Shepard plays. Here. <laughs> the, the encounter with Beckett, you know, Bergman and Beckett were the 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 life changers. I mean Beckett, you know, I, I think I read almost everything he wrote in in the in the next 2 years and um so yeah, that uncle I owe a lot to him. They just told me where to go, and then reading Gass's essays a little later, that that's like an MFA program. He tells you what to read, and what even what to think about it as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I was thinking um, of the people who've influenced me, mm-hmm. um, filmmakers. Uh, you mentioned Woody Allen, and yeah, I have to cop to it, like big influence. Uh, and you know, right now that's a very uh, it's a very touchy thing to discuss. You know what I'm saying? You talk about cancel culture, and you talk about how we're yeah. supposed to react and relate to work by somebody who, in his private life, has done repre- uh, reprehensible things. Um, I see this argument play out on social media and in the media, you know, in the wider media. And I've had conversations with my wife you know, where Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know if we, like, I can't watch this anymore. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I don't know if we should watch this movie. It just makes me feel gross or something like that, you know? Uh, but I think like, if I'm to be perfectly honest with you, if I'm in conversations with friends about this stuff, I think you have to be able to divorce the art from the artist. Yeah. And
1: the way he talked about and his relationship with Mia Farrow, you could say is is in is the starring role in Hannah and Her Sisters and Husbands and Wives, uh, and Crimes and Misdemeanors. Those those films they are so full of of life and wisdom about relationships. There, why would you want to lose that? I mean, he was really, I think, self-flagellating in some of those films and and bearing his soul. I mean, I've I've looked at them recently. There's a lot going on in those films that that it's, you know, it's pretty wonderful that they were so popular because I think they were important to people's formations. Just talking about relationships and and talking about how men and mostly how men and women butt heads a lot. And, And those films we very important, I think, for a lot of people and uh, and crimes and misdemeanors is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because then you have you have the comedy, but you also have murder. <laughs> I mean, a real a real crime and punishment situation and that it's there's nothing off about it. It's totally believable. It's yeah the acting the writing the camera work by the bergman cinematographer Sven Nyquist, did that film and they they're, they're just amazing pieces but you know caravaggio killed someone are you not going to look at caravaggio paintings right
0: maybe <laughs> maybe like so maybe the answer is that like time has to go by like woody allen has to die and like I get, if somebody has been traumatized in a similar way, you know, I can understand how his films might be like the last thing they'd want to see. Um, But I'm just thinking like squarely and as a piece of artwork, like detached from him and all the bullshit of his private life, you know, like just as a piece of art, you know, I think that they're, like you say, Caravaggio, um, every Marlon Brando movie, (laughs) you know, (laughs) You start getting right. into the lo- the private lives of the actors. Like there's almost, you know, you'd be very limited in what your choices are. The albums on your, you know, at least when you used to have albums, you know, what mm-hmm. records are you going to listen to if your benchmark for behavior is held up against, you know, the modern rock star, <laughs> you know, like,
1: yeah, I mean, are we going to go and are we going to go down the road where, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman is reprehensible because he died. He was a drug addict. I mean, I could almost see, are we really going to start to go to that far with this stuff?
0: I You're mean, only, I can't even Philip Seymour that, Hoffman's a saint to me. I can't. Yeah, I'm in that camp. I like uh, that was a rough one for me was when he was yes. that was a that was a big loss. I really loved. Uh, well, I him. mean, the best actor,
1: the best writer and the best rock star of our generation. They all killed themselves.
0: Who? Who are you thinking?
1: Well, Hoffman, Foster, Wallace, and Kurt Cobain.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm saying Seymour Hoffman wasn't strictly a suicide, but it was, you know, he was down that road. I mean, there's a lot of pain going around. We, you know, we're living in it certainly, and I, I don't think that's a coincidence that that's the case. That those three guys who are all around, were around the same age mid 60s born in
0: the mid 60s mm. yeah foster wallace is an interesting case because again like i i have borne witness over the years to so much uh blowback about him not only his behavior in his private life but i think there's just a lot of people who think he's overrated and um mm-hmm. everyone's entitled to their own opinion but yeah. what i think and i just could maybe i'm just missing it is uh In terms of just like brain power on the page like as a person thinking on the page oh yeah like there's just nothing i've read that comes close you know like and and again maybe i'm missing it but like can we at least just acknowledge that this guy was a fucking super genius like he was really smart that doesn't mean he was like a saint or like a a super wise person all the time you know he had Mm -hmm. human suffering obviously you know that uh that puts him right down there with the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? Like, he struggled a lot as a human being in his relationships and with himself and with mental illness and all of it. But, like... He let it all hang out, too.
1: I mean, good old Neon. That's That story is unbelievable. He was writing about it before
0: it happened. Um, well, I enjoyed reading your book. It It is... Uh, Thank you. ...different than everything that I've read this year. And... Uh, in recent memory, you know, it truly like stands out in that way. Like I just, uh, I just, I found myself feeling like, wow, I just haven't seen anything like this in in a while, Uh, you know, and certainly um, admire how much time and effort you put into building each sentence. As you said, there's definitely that feeling, you know, that this is a person who really labored over every line and you truly care about art, you know, (laughs) Um in a way that like I'm like damn but like I'm you know I'm outclassed here in terms of like your passion for and the breadth of your reading um and film watching. You know, I've got a lot to catch up on. I, I feel that way so often. I have so many Yeah. So well, many Well, It's all spots. there
1: for us. It's 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 all you know, there's so much out there. So many books and films. Mm. You know, We'll, we'll we'll never uh, we'll never get to them all, but there there's a lot, and I'm I'm discovering stuff every day. The Ascent by this Ukrainian filmmaker, this woman who died when she was young. It's called The Ascent from 1977. It it blew me away. I've never I hadn't seen a film like that in 10 years.
0: Where where have you been? Where do you watch most of your films? Like if you're home, the
1: Criterion from- Channel or Mubi okay movie streaming service cool a lot of foreign stuff yeah yeah
0: well that's the thing is that you know this is another one of my like grumpy old man frustrations but all these (laughs) different competing streaming services and this vast library of film that we have and now we have like 50 different things we need to subscribe to to try Uh, to find every you know it's just it's the the tedium of it drives me crazy
1: (laughs) it's out of control
0: yeah but i guess like the the flip side of that would be like you know everything is accessible in ways that it wasn't previously you you would have, you would probably not even have had a chance to see that ukrainian film that's right without these new technologies <laughs> so i guess you take the good with the bad but um i enjoyed your book i should say too another line that i highlighted and i think this comes from your interview with william gass um which, I mean, you know, my listeners would probably be interested to hear a little bit about that, uh, the your take and the experience of being with him. But before I get further and before I forget, he, I think he said that being interviewed is bad for the soul. So I just want to <laughs> I want to flag that and hope that this one was on the lesser side of that. No, th-
1: this was very good. Very good. Yeah.
0: And anything you want to share about your time with Gas? Like it's just
1: it, it was like being with a master. I've called called him the master because he'd written so much. He was almost ninety then. Uh, I just I wrote all these questions, but I didn't even ask a th- uh, more than a third of them because I just listened to him, and that, that's really what I went there to do and to to be in his presence and see and he has this he had this huge library i mean it's still there uh he's dead but you know i don't know 50 a hundred thousand books in this in this large house It, it was a wonderful experience uh and he's not he and he wasn't a grumpy old man as as many people might think he was very funny and welcoming and nice and uh it was it was a wonderful time Hmm.
0: well i enjoyed i remember uh, really enjoying that piece you know because it's uh yeah uh, there's that one that there's a couple of them that i i feel like cut against or or like stand out you know as being unique the combos essay too because i grew Mm. up eating combos that one i also (laughs) remember and the the comparison of their taste, like the vomity taste of combos, <laughs> resonates deeply. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's it's great to meet you. I appreciate uh, the time and the conversation. And thank you. I, I always ask people if what they're working on, if they have anything in the works. You know, do you have another book in the offing, or are you still thinking about it? Or
1: uh, no, I'm trying to finish up an, a shorter novel, a shortish novel. Any, so, hints,
0: any hints as to what it's about?
1: Uh, people will think it's autofiction, but I'm trying to make something like Naipaul's Enigma of Arrival or Sabald, which you know will throw a fork in the autofiction. But it it will sound like my life. But I have a the the narrator has a brother, and I don't have a brother. So there's little things like that. Okay, that I've like trying to throw throw off people
0: all right well we'll look forward to it uh, my thanks once again thank you it was great all right guys there you have it that is that is uh, Greg Gerkey, and his new essay collection is called see what I see available now from zero gram press you can find Greg Gerkey on the internet at greggerkey.com. his handle on twitter is at greg underscore Gerke. Once again, the essay collection is called See What I See. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available to you, the listener, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program, if you get something from it, if you listen regularly and you have the means, support the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon. slash other pod. there are different tiers different levels of support for as little as one dollar a month you can support this show and then as you go higher up you can get stuff a tote bag a coffee mug a t-shirt I will write you a postcard I'll wish you a happy birthday patreon.com slash other pod. support this program If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. There is an official Other People with Brad Listy app. Did you know that? It, too, is free. It's a free app. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. The Other People podcast is uh, available now on YouTube as well. That's a relatively new development. The Other People with Brad Listy show has its own YouTube channel. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel. Smash the subscribe button if you want to help the show uh, in a free and easy way rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts or uh, Stitcher or anywhere Spotify wherever the show lives if you can rate it and review it that helps the show find new listeners in an algorithmic fashion coming up next time on the program who's it going to be? I don't know exactly. Mark Leidner? Matt Bell? Something like that.